This episode contains, among other things, a deep, frank conversation about life, death, Catholicism, the cosmos, reverential dissection, body phenomena, including orgasm, service, enlightenment, circumcision, some swear words. All you get is me. I curse. (laughs) (laughs) I make sex jokes. A lot of humor. And of course, some challenges and gifts of being bodies. And in case it's not clear, Gil dissects with dedication donor forms, no longer inhabited bodies gladly donated by their prior inhabitants to illuminate the wonders of the human body so that we might all live ours more fully. Hey folks, welcome to the Brilliant Body Podcast, a forum to learn about and liberate the brilliance of your body and ultimately to expand the meaning and experience of intelligence. Join me, Ali Mazay, and other body masters to explore pioneering and varied perspectives on what it means and feels like to be embodied. So many people feel disconnected from their bodies due to emotional or physical pain or even conditioning and lack of education. Others feel quite at home in their bodies, yet want to learn to have more pleasure, awareness, and access to the body's guidance. This podcast is for everybody. Each one of my trailblazing guests has studied their own bodies and others' bodies for decades, and will share their expertise and unique mission, how to thrive as a body. So join us and reclaim your body's brilliance. Gil Headley, my fantastic guest, started out his adult learning journey at the Divinity School of the University of Chicago, studying for his PhD in theological ethics. During that time, he also became a certified rolfer and spent five years studying psychodynamics and energy healing in New York City. He's been an avid student of personal and spiritual development his whole life. Gill's combined interests and training has supported his personal exploration of the human body and led him to develop an integral approach to the study of human anatomy. Over the past 27 years, Gill has led hundreds of hours of hands-on human dissection workshops in the laboratory, and through this in-person work, as well as keynote presentations and online programs, he's encouraged thousands of fellow somanauts to appreciate, explore, and embody the wonders of the human form. Gil has such an extraordinary way of viewing anatomy, so it was clear to me that if I was lucky enough to get him, you would really enjoy listening to him as much as I have. His perspective on the human body and on life in general, through the lens of all that he's discovered inside the universe within our skin, and the way he so intimately and respectfully, I would say even reverently, explores the body in each and every unique form that he encounters is so inspiring and gives a perspective on bodies and the wonder, the magic that we are as physical beings. I think you're going to find this conversation so fascinating to listen to somebody who's spent thousands and thousands of hours experiencing the inside of people's bodies. My fabulous guest, Gil Headley. Gil. Hello. Yay, it's you. It is. (laughs) Nice to see you. Likewise. So I have so many questions for you. 
because your perspective on the body is so unusual, not just because most people haven't seen the inside of bodies, but also because from my experience with your teachings, the way you perceive the body is so unmechanistic mm. and so reverential that it seems to inform living bodies in ways that my long ago study of anatomy when I was first starting out as a body worker did not have or did not offer. Mm. So that was one of the many reasons why I wanted to talk to you is to understand more about how it is that you even perceive bodies before you started in this work and how your work as an anatomist and an integral anatomist has changed your perspective on bodies in general, specifically your body as well. Mm. Lots of questions. There. That was a question. <laughs> We've launched. Well, I was just raised in the suburbs of New Jersey as a young, devout Roman Catholic. And so I carry much baggage from many levels of my culture, society, and family. I was just a tiny, skinny, <laughs> kick dirt in your face <laughs> kid. And I started doing Arnold Schwarzenegger's supersets <laughs> back in the 70s. He wrote this book and it was sort of autobiographical, but also fitness instructive. So I followed his program and got big <laughs> and it worked. I was shredded and just a kid doing bodybuilding in the seventies when there were a lot of bodybuilding heroes to look up to. So it was about as mechanistic as you could get. We had at our high school, what was called the universal machine. It was a thing in the seventies that would be in high school gym locker rooms and it basically had four or five stations that had lat pulled down it had bent right press it had leg press and then a what do you call it a bench press and you just went around circles with your friends and tried to show off for each other basically and we all walked around with our, our, our 24 hour lat spread and i like to joke that our range of motion was that of the universal machine <laughs> we, we could we could do this we could do this <laughs> and we could do this so very very limiting framework but when i was in grad school i joined the tai chi club at the university mm -hmm. of chicago tai chi dao club and that very much expanded my repertoire of movement and just got me into more ex expanded range of motion for my body. Why were you drawn to it in the first place? Well, I gave up the weightlifting and just started reading. And then my posture became just literally like a monk with a book in front of my head and my head bowed towards the book. And then I would walk from South side of Chicago all the way to the loop six miles and then get on the Jeffrey six bus and go home still reading you know so I would walk and read and walk and read I read thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pages that way so my range of motion had gone to zero I walked around like I had a two by four out my ass and a bent neck so the Tai Chi club I, I knew I needed something something was desperately wrong uh, so I joined the Tai Chi club because they looked so beautiful at their demo, you know, all these six or seven people dancing like great blue herons together. So I joined that club and expanded my repertoire movement at some point, like seven years into that. I had been doing it two hours a day for many years and it became actually a rut in itself. 
And I realized I just had to move, move, like I had to just move any old which way. And that's when I got this look going on with me. <laughs> so, so when people see me on videos and I'm like all over the place and they're like, what's with this guy? Well, that's me breaking out of Tai Chi. <laughs> But I can't say I'm a mover, particularly. I, I mean, I'm, I'm an academic computer guy sitting around at my dissection table, bent over in a ball again for another 25, 30 years now. And people are like, what's your movement practice? How do you move? I'm like, I have no movement practice. But in a sense, I've kind of sacrificed my body a bit for the team because the stuff that I do at the table is of an order of magnitude of challenge and difficulty and physical duress that I wouldn't wish on anyone else, frankly. So I do it and then I kind of wriggle out of it for a while. Yeah, I keep hearing a theme of tremendous focus and great discipline to the point of almost obsessive concentration. That's a good word. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. A, little, Lucky a, little, for us. a little obsessive. And it's funny, but a couple of years ago, I was just like nine hours into a day and sitting around the table with a couple other people. I was just kind of going on. I was doing my thing, you know, and I was saying, I don't understand my kids. Two of my kids are artists and they just spend like 10, 12 hours a day obsessively drawing these tiny little things. And my son is detailed to the pixel and my daughter spends her 12 hours crouched over someone's flesh doing tattoos on them. I was like, where do they get? And they literally laughed in my face. They're like, so birds of a feather yeah i guess so Um, obsession and i meant it jokingly and lovingly actually can imply kind of a neurotic component whereas actually i think you're profoundly committed to something and i'd love for you to talk about what your sense of that is well i am on a mission and i don't know why i i I have always been a very service oriented mission oriented person it's just part of my makeup I don't know if it came from being a Catholic for one life or 50 lives. Uh, So I feel myself to be living a life in service of the human project. And I will put that ahead of many other things uh, that folks might want to do, like rest or (laughs) go on a vacation or something like that, because it's like, oh, time's short. I know I'm going to be dead and I don't know, whenever, you know, it's going to happen. If anyone has put on a few decades, they know that they go by really quickly. Like the first one seems like it takes forever. And then the fifth or sixth one is like, whoa, they're going by fast, better get on it like shit or get off the pot. This is the moment, you know? And so I am very, very driven by my service mission. And if I were to put it in a sentence, which is what you're required to do when you're writing PhDs and you have to sum up your thesis, it would be that I'm on a mission to rebrand the human body from a problem to a gift. And that might be the summary of my mission, because I feel that when you unpack that mission in a given life and a given person's life, there's a lot to be said for shifts and experience that can happen when that little metaphorical thought reframe takes place and you realize that you're living in this Rolls Royce technology unparalleled by any other technology on the planet that it was given to you for free. That is completely up to you what you do with it, whether you do anything with it or not. That is your prerogative. We can play with it. We can explore it. We can find its end ranges of potential. And I think that's really cool. And so when folks are just moaning about what a problem their body is, uh, if they give a little thought reframe for just a second, realize that there's about 
several trillion successful chemical operations happening while they whine about some petty little thing going on somewhere on in their life or on the planet or whatever. And it's like, wait a second, just shift your attention, put a little energy into the gift side of it. See if you can't open this present to maybe a, a higher degree than you've bothered. It's like you've been given this pile of gifts under the Christmas tree and you haven't unwrapped any of them. And here they are laying before you unwrapped while you complain about the thing that you don't have when you actually have it, you just didn't open it up yet because the potential to resolve so much resides within us and not outside of us. And we just got to explore it a little bit. I'm so touched. I'm just <laughs> so touched, Gail. Really, and because I feel like I've been unwrapping this being thing my whole life daily, yeah. my body has been something that I've um, explored and contended with because I've had injuries since I was very young mm -hmm. and I've had to navigate it with great detail, which is also part of why I'm very skilled working with it and other people's bodies because mm -hmm. of great at, and, and precise attention. But I've also often wondered, why do I care so much about this thing that we are when it's given me so much grief as well as <laughs> joy and pleasure in my life? Uh -huh. So it's just so inspiring to hear that. And I'd love to know, usually I ask this question at the very end of, of a conversation, but I want to know what you love most about being your body, your <laughs> personal body. My personal body, yeah. which I honestly despised for a good section of my life because my spiritual orientation was that this was sort of a curse, not a gift. So yes. I'm definitely working on myself here. This larger mission is a reflection of my own internal one that I believe is probably something other folks can relate to. So I did not perceive my body as a gift. And it, it was both a moral challenge because as a Catholic, it's like, damn, every sensation seems like a threat to your moral status as a good human being. Oh my God, I'm feeling good. This must be wrong. Contending with that is, is a challenge that I know many, many people face, uh, but also I have my own physical challenges, which I'll spare you, but they're significant and as, as pleasant as my body may have looked over several decades of my life under the hood, it was really very challenging. And so it's taken me a while, actually, to come into a positive relationship with my body. And that's not in small part what my whole career has been about, is facilitating my own stepping in to the physical form with acceptance and, and joy, reverence, and appreciation, as opposed to fear, loathing, disappointment, uh, anger, and all those things. And it's an ongoing process. I meet people who are at ease in their bodies in a way that I can only aspire to and think, okay, well, that's where I'm headed. I'm headed towards that kind of joyful acceptance of the physical, I think, part of my job. Isn't it amazing how often, or maybe it's always the case, I don't know, that we tend to teach what we need to learn ourselves. Oh, yeah. I'm talking to me. <laughs> People are like, oh, you speak to me. I'm like, no, nope, just sitting here talking out loud to myself. I can literally write the things that I need to hear. So it's it's great. I've got my own inner guru. <laughs> but you have to listen. You know, I have to listen. The first time I heard you take a body, quote unquote, part, 
and re I won't even say reframe it because that that word is too constraining. You re-perceived it, re-envisioned it, reconceived. So my yeah. first book was called Reconceiving My Body. There you go. That's and it's, it literally gives birth to it anew. Please explain, for example, the heart from your perspective and how you have done that with the heart and how you help us do that with the heart. Well, that will actually tie into the unanswered part of your very first question, you know, because this mechanistic perspective and philosophy that we all inherit from our established uh, medical paradigms and anatomical formats and physiology books would all have us believe that we're a machine and that that's the reality, actually, and that your heart is a pump pushing blood through pipes. It's absurd. It's totally absurd. It's absurd even by its own mechanistic terms, because find me a pump that can do what the heart does. There is no such thing on our planet. Maybe a pump is a shitty model of the heart, but the heart is certainly not a model of the pump. So what we have instead is life, life writhing within our chest, and our books and mechanistic models can't handle it. It's outside of their paradigm. The actual reality is outside of the mechanistic paradigm. So if you want to enter into relationship with the actual reality and not live according to a model that's so truncated and barren as to leave you broken and asking for a replacement, then you'd best slide into a different model. So for me, I look to nature while I'm sitting next to a plant, our heart center is what I would call what's inside of our chest. The heart center is the center of a much larger organic expression that infiltrates to within one or two cells of every cell of our trillion cells, trillions of cells of our body. So this thing is shaped like us. The whole heart is shaped like us. And in its movement center, because this is a dynamic living life form, it is having the potential to move us. See, we're not like just some vehicle that this poor heart is riding around in. You know, given the space to express itself, the heart moves us through space into each other's arms. It motivates us to move from here to there. It literally will shake you if you just sit still and let it let yourself be moved both at the very physical level, but also at the emotional level, because this heart, this moving heart center is this emotional center as well, which we're very defended against in our culture. And we have to crawl our way back into our heart center, having been dislodged almost permanently into our brains on the left side, particularly where we rattle around in a myopic and particulate vision of the world, the fragmented world, which hurts the heart actually and renders us ill, that orientation. So this heart center is, is no pump. It's the place where life is refreshing its movement you know, within us, where, where our, our, our living blood is refreshing its movement and sending itself spinning on another cycle around our body on a spinning planet for us to enjoy and take pleasure in and be moved by in such a way that we're moved towards one another rather than separated from one another, which seems to be a theme lately. 
Indeed. One of the many revelations I've had in your classes is that blood actually moves in spirals, Yeah. you know, which is totally different than what I used to think in terms of a pump anyway, that implies that blood is doing something that in fact it's not doing. Yeah. Blood is a vortical mover. It's a laminated vortex. So it's literally centrif centripetal. It's spinning and it's concentrating energy in the center of its vortex where its highest carrying capacity, whether it be nutrients or gases, oxygen, or all the little blood cells and all that stuff in there, white blood cells, red blood cells, chemistry and energy. So like prana, life force is being circulated um, and irradiating the tissues as it spins along. It's a beautiful, beautiful movement that the blood does, but we can turn it into a filtered knuckleball if we want with clogged arteries that are actually not the problem. They're the solution to a chemical status in the blood that represents friction, hypertension, and resistance to the flow of life. The, the chemistry of negative emotions is very acidic Basically, it pulls the blood from its native alkalinity towards acidity. It doesn't get to acid, we'd be dead, but it, it moves it out of its ideal alkaline state towards acid as can diet as well and lack of movement. All these things can mitigate the health of our blood chemistry, which then affects our vasculature. So it wears on it. And then the vasculature due to homeostasis will recover itself by becoming bone if we demand it or scraggly bits inside. And it gets all jagged and like eggshells in there, but that's not its native form. Its native form is the riverbed that responds to the movement of the fluid rather than the canal that demands the fluid move a certain way. And that's our life choice in relationship to the entire <laughs> The entire world is, are we flowing with it? Are we allowing ourselves to be moved by life? Or are we in a state of resistance, demanding it go a certain way, and then wondering why we break in the face of our own stiffness? So speaking of clogged arteries, how much resistance do you get in the medical world, in the anatomical world? Because you're clearly, in how you just described this, reconception of just one organ, you're, I mean, basically a shit disturber. You must be shaking a lot of people's view of what oh, we are. Here's the thing, Allie. You're not listening to me. Oh, no. And I'm not speaking to them. I am more timid than you might imagine. I speak to the choir, you know, the choir loves me. So I stick with them. I've had other people say, Gil, you have to get this out here. You have to talk to doc. I'm like, no, actually I don't let someone else do that. I have no interest in speaking to people who don't want to engage and who aren't up for a challenge. Some people come to change. Some people come to the planet because they're into being challenged. They like having their dogmas crushed. I am into having my dogmas crushed and I enjoy crushing my dogmas. And if anyone around me enjoys crushing dogmas, we can do it together. We can get our mortar and pestle out and crush a dogma together. But people who resist having their dogmas crushed 
don't like hanging out with me. And so it's very selective. People who come to my class, it's all word of mouth. So folks are hungry to be challenged or have their ideas changed or ready to be broken open in that direction. But folks who, I mean, I have friends who just don't want to hear it. I just don't go there with them. They don't want to hear it. We can love people who don't think the way we do. I hope if not, it's a small world. Yeah. Speaking of that, another class I took was on the nerve project, which people can read about on your website. You were talking about how you'd look through seven plus publications and everybody was describing different things. There was no corroboration amongst these seven different resources. And in fact, you were discovering something other than what they had each described as well. And I think that's when we started talking about fat, which I really wanted to talk to you about because I was so impressed by this, that fat is so much more enervated. Is that a fair word to use? It is hooked up. Um, It is hooked up. Yeah. It's smart stuff. It's smart stuff. And we just began to talk about the intelligence of fat. We're such a fat hating world in general, not all cultures, but many. I know people would be fascinated to hear what you've been discovering about fat on our nerve network that both receives and gives information from it, through it. Uh, And the smarts aren't just about nerves. We tend to be a a nerve-loving culture. Uh, We are a fat-hating culture and a nerve-loving culture, Uh, but also there are our chemical communication network in the form of a molecule, Candace Burke called molecules of emotion or information substances that are flowing in our bloodstream are also an extreme form of intelligence, also inherent in our fatty tissues or adiposal tissues. Adipocytes are connective tissue cells uh, taxonomically. Uh, adipose form is a connective tissue type as opposed to muscle or nervous tissue or epithelium. So uh, adipocytes or fat cells are our connective tissue cells. I like to call the underlying layers of fat beneath our skin, which have many names. I call them superficial fascia. As a redirect for fat phobic people, you can't even start the conversation. If you say the word fat, it's like saying the word God to people who... <laughs> have sore feelings about God. You say God and they're gone. They just went into their head and they're going to start running programs on what that word means. So like in my poems, I don't even write the word. I write a G and then two squiggles, like the breath of God, you know, and that way people are like, what, what, what did he say? You know, it doesn't register as that word that they have so much angst or anger, fear, opinions or overbearing relatives. So it's the same to me. I do the same thing with the word fat. I'm like, well, let's talk about superficial fascia or adipose or anything except that three-letter word, which is like a curse in our culture. And then when you find out that all these amazing things belong to FAT, then you have to reframe your relationship with FAT. So when I speak of superficial fascia, I'm using the word in the way that Henry Gray, the 19th century anatomist, used it to describe the multiple layers of subcutaneous adipose, as well as elsewhere in the body, but superficial fascia is that particular layer. And that's what I was talking about in that particular lecture or conversation that we had that you mentioned, where in the nerve project, which was you know a five month long epic marathon of dissecting nerves in the tissue of a single 
donor form to see how it would change my relationship with it. And hopefully I could bring that forward. I found a lot of nerves in there. <laughs> and, and there's so much stringy bits that are nerve as opposed to say collagen fibers that are structuring the tissue matrix, but actual nerve supply, peripheral cutaneous branches of named nerves that are branching not only to the skin surface here for our sensations of warmth and wiggly hairs and wind blowing over and all the amazing sensations that we feel on our skin, but what is the sensory return that's occurring from our fatty tissues? It turns out it's very much about chemoreceptors as well, so that we have sensory receptors in our fatty tissues that are actually sort of tasting the hormone output from the adipocytes and reflecting that information directly further down the line to the brain, to other chemoreceptors. So there's this whole dance of communication going on between sensory nerve endings in the fatty tissues and the chemical output of those cells, which is, again, as mentioned, its own extremely high form of intelligence. It's not like well, it was leptin. That was a huge discovery. The company tried to buy it. I mean, it's like, oh my gosh, because now we've found the fat hormone or whatever. And if we can kill it, we'll save the world. If we can find a way to destroy this monster, we'll save all humanity from the dread fat devil. So didn't work out that way at all. The leptin is one of many hormones that's produced in the fatty tissues that's communicating to our metabolism, to our bones, to our pancreas, to our bloodstream, to our endocrine glands in a dance that's so complex that no one can learn it. And some company that spent like, I don't know, it was like 27 billion, the rights to leptin or something got totally slammed and went nowhere with it because it turned out that just flipping that switch just caused a cascade of destruction elsewhere in the body that was uh, unsellable. And so, so that was one of the most laughable uh, efforts to hijack our fat in the history of fat hating. And, and it, it didn't work out. They just ended up with their hands on their little fatty hips, scratching their heads and wondering what the hell happened. <laughs> so it was my great pleasure in that exploration to be able to look with my eyeballs at those tiny fibers. I mean, that's all. It's really simple. The work that I do is so simple. I'm just like picking around with the most absurd little tools at the gross level, no microscope. Your grandmother's walnut picker. My grandma's walnut pick, exactly. A little metal paddle, a tiny little metal paddle that's round at the end. And then I go scratch, 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 and see what you see. And it's just an observational process. People. Think I'm a scientist, I think it's hysterical. I consider myself a sculptor and I observe the, the matter or the textures that I've come to have a familiar tactile relationship with. So just like a someone who works with marble and a chisel and a hammer have a very keen sense of what it feels like when the stone chips off. They know that feeling and they know how to work with that chipping away and, and they're looking for something in there and they are following the green, but also a vision. And they're trying to balance the tension between what they see in their mind and what can be executed in that stone and how that stone impacts their vision. And it's just a constant back and forth. It's the mm -hmm. same thing with me and the body. 
except the body has many textures. There's the surface texture. We only find it here. There's the buoyant fatty layer underneath that. There's the membrane that fatty layer slides around on. There's the dense fibrous layer that has its own very particular bouncy, trouncy, tensional forces that go through it. There's the muscle beneath that. There's the bone. There's the, the viscera, the organs. So all these are different textures that I've been playing with for a long time and that I have a certain kind of relationship with and that I have a kind of expectation about that's constantly being challenged as I try and bring my vision and be an honest witness to what's there. And they don't always go together. Yeah. I was going to say, it's like a dialectic where on one hand, you are attuned to what you're looking for, not unlike an archaeologist as well. You describe it as sculpture, but I've heard archaeologists describe mm -hmm. their process. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, as you said, you don't know what you're going to end up finding. It's fantastic. It's funny because when I was a little boy, I want to be an archaeologist when I grew up. When I grew up, I want to be an archaeologist. And I know that you often know your donor people, or at least some of them. And I wanted to talk to you too about what that's like working with people that may have, in at least one case, sat at your dinner table for years and what that's like when the life force is no longer in their bodies and you've known them from their external, your external experience of them. And then you're experiencing them in this other very different form. Would you talk about that? It's so different. It's so different. We embodied folk. We living embodied folk have a way of animating the form that is particular to ourselves and that can go away. It can stop. So I don't think we stop, but the way that we're animating the form stops. We call that death and death is this scary thing in our culture. That means the end, the loss, the end, the end, no more. And it is a it is a stopping point. It is an end to the relationship with that individual as they were animating that form. That does end. And when it ends before we end, we're sad, generally. When you do dissection on the non-living form, the vacated form, the one that's no longer being animated by the one whom we recognized there. If you haven't done that, it's like, well, how could you do that? Or maybe it's a transgression or something for some cultures also, right? Or an offense. But it helps to get away from the offensive part when the person gives themselves to you for that purpose. So that overcomes one hurdle. And then there's the disgust factor because we're a little icky inside at times. It can be pretty sloppy in there. I mean, I've changed a lot of diapers, you know, and it's great training for dissection. I actually ask on my application, like, do you have kids, a dog, anything? Like, do you handle shit is what I'm trying to say. Like, someone else's <laughs> shit. It's not just your shit, but someone else's shit. Because if you have, this is not going to be that bad. So it's a lot like that. But the thing is, whether you've known the form or not known the form, when you know what the uninhabited form is, which is a track, a footprint, a shoe that's been given to goodwill, an old t-shirt, it's not the person. It's a relic of the person. It's formed under their influence but it's not them. And I don't know anyone really who mistakes a dead person for their person. 
They might for a minute or two, but give it a day, <laughs> give it a week, <laughs> and they will quickly dissociate mm-hmm. that connection and realize, oh, that's not them there in that casket, on that hospital bed mattress. That's not them. And because it's not them, I don't mind taking it apart because I'm a demo guy and I'm really interested in what's inside there. And if someone has gifted me, I'm going to open that present. And so, yeah, sometimes I have either someone in my media community knows the person. That's pretty common in our lab in Colorado Springs. People know us and they want to come to our lab or they know us and they want their parents to come to the lab. So we'll have that kind of connection. And then in an A to Z project, Z was a friend of the lab director. I, I know his whole family, his kids, his grandkids, his wife, his siblings, they're all familiar to me. And there's a great responsibility when you know, but I've always felt that responsibility. So it wasn't a new thing to me. I was the right guy because I already felt responsible for a total stranger's relative to care for them, to respect the gift by respecting that form, to be a caretaker of the dead is a way of respecting the living as well as the life lived there. So that's a thing that I do. That's been my whole career. And so when it comes to folks, you know, well, it's it's actually kind of even better (laughs) because there's no doubt that this person is into this. I didn't dissect my dad, but my dad came to my lab and sat there in the class and watched people dissecting bodies. So when he donated his body, he more than most knew what he was doing. I think most people donate their bodies. They have no clue what they're doing. They don't know what dissection is. They don't know what anatomical study is. And if you didn't have a good sense about it and you saw there's a bunch of vultures picking on your body, (laughs) then you'd be like, oh, I'm not comfortable with that. But you're not actually not comfortable with that because you don't even know what that is and it won't matter to you much at all. And yet, when I'm dissecting on a body, I'm always very careful and caretaking for that body and as it becomes parts because I know that the person might not have understood the process. And I want them to know that I'm really taking care of them as best as I can in the circumstances if they happen to be over my shoulder somewhere in another plane. But when I know the person, literally I'm friends with the person that's on the table, I'm like, damn, this is fun because he's totally into it. And I don't got to worry. And his son is filming for me. And so I know the family's good with this. I'm texting his wife. It's all good. It's all good. So it makes it, it was actually lighter. Yeah. And you also know that he's totally like laughing at me half the time because I'm fucking up and. (laughs) The sense of the soul present with you and you're working on bodies. Uh, I will reference that being, but I, I don't know. I don't. When was the last time you went back to Goodwill to hang out with your t-shirt for a little longer? (laughs) It just doesn't (laughs) happen. You don't even remember that you owned it. You know, it's just gone. You donate and you forget about them. You might hope that someone enjoys them when you drop them off. So maybe for that one moment at the drop-off point, you're in some Mm -hmm. kind of momentary fleeting goodbye connection with the thing. But it's such a remote interest to our souls, I believe. Huh, interesting. Okay, so being that you're also a poet and a lover of language, 
one of the things that I have spent a lot of time thinking about is how we use language to describe our relationship. This is a word even of itself, our relationship to, preposition to, our body. Sure. Again, as if we are inside of this thing, which sounds an awful lot like it is a vehicle for our souls, which I have some problem with because ideally, anyway, I would like to be so associated with my body, so merged with it while I'm alive, so sentient and aware and sensationally alive as it, that I don't love the idea of prepositions and relationship too, as it implies some distance between me and this biological experience. So I'm wondering what you think about that. That's a fun topic, because if you say, I am my body, and take away the prepositions and make a total association. I think you've radically underestimated who you are. To say I'm not my body is also a bit of a fool's errand, <laughs> right? Because I am certainly includes your body. So I wouldn't reduce who I am to my body, but I wouldn't once you acknowledge the continuity of consciousness and you expand your sense of who I am to include all, you can say I am my body, but my body includes everything, right? Exactly. When you're talking about the trillions and trillions of chemical and nerve and synapse, you know, extravaganza going on in any given second. How is that not infinite enough to describe what we are? Well, I'd take it even further, though. And I'd say that there is a continuity between my body and your body, despite the several thousand miles yeah. <laughs> of physical space between us, which is quite imaginary. And I can look at this planet and wonder how it's like the little red blood cell attains consciousness and says, I am. I am Bill, the little red blood cell. <laughs> And because it has this I am consciousness, if it were to see itself in the mirror, it would probably think I have a little dimple in my belly and I'm circular and red <laughs> and I'm full of oxygen and life is wonderful. <laughs> but it would be failing to recognize that it is blood <laughs> and that blood is life and that life is not limited to a single form or planet or universe, or timeline. And so despite the trillions of things going on inside of Bill's little red blood cell body, Bill has underestimated his identity, that little red blood cell. And despite the trillions of successful operations going inside this body, I am covers worlds. So I am Gil is a radical reduction of I am. And yet I am. <laughs> so my sense of who I am, if you've ever taken a lot of mushrooms, <laughs> you'll, you'll quickly note, it is only very ephemerally associated with Gil. Gil is like a friggin' just a little swirly in the ocean of consciousness. And that swirly may be sustained for a certain period of time, and then it's not sustained and nothing is actually lost. Nothing at all is lost. The ocean didn't go anywhere. 
because that swirly isn't swirling in that particular way in that particular time. The ocean is the ocean is ocean and it knows who it is. The ocean knows I am. And if I've learned anything from the dissection process, if I've learned a single thing that should sustain me, it would be that the body is one. One body, many textures, differential movement, without separation. And that notion of one body, many textures, differential movement without separation conveys at scale to you and I who share one body with many textures. We move about as if we're separate, but we're not. And our planets are circulating in a galaxy one body, many textures, differential movement without separation. They are continuous. And this galaxy with billions and trillions of others and trillions of other universes, it just goes on and on and on. And yet we are in relationship only with the scale that we can energetically sustain. So a lot of us can't even get into relationship with our own bodies. We're just floating above our bodies. We haven't even gotten into this one loner meat sack <laughs> and yet that same consciousness having so much trouble relating to this little itty bitty speck could know itself to be all mm. it could just hasn't gotten to that vibe yet okay so what is the benefit advantage of being this meat sack temporarily for a very short blink of time it's the hologram. It's like, uh, what is his name? Uh, Michael Talbot, the holographic universe. Because, as you actually said earlier, the whole is here. So, explore this, witness all. It's as good a way, to my mind, as becoming a mystic as any other. Yes. My view is that it is how we evolve, it is how evolution happens by somehow being at least as human beings in these tangible forms, because they are so messy and because they feel all the things they feel and because they die and, you know, all the things that they do and are while we are them or yeah. identify with them or if afraid you of them. Actually radically accept your body. You're pretty much enlightened, you know? Yeah, because you have to accept things you don't like, like shedding and loss and death is all happening inside this form. The turnover of our cells, the spleen breaking down the dead blood cells and recycling them into other things, the skin just sloughing off into the air, and then we breathe our neighbor's skin and then <laughs> cough it out. It's such a shit show. <laughs> And yet the universe is a shit show. And it's hysterical. Yeah, well, religion didn't think it was very hysterical. I mean, a lot of religion is based on, as you said at the beginning, demonizing what this is because it is so messy and it can be so frightening. Delicious and sensual and sexy and gives you a boner and we put that somewhere and it's like, woohoo. And then we orgasm and this whole thing goes, blah. And that is itself just like a tiny taste of this vehicle's 
pleasure potential. It's like the low bar on pleasure potential. Yeah, talk about pleasure and orgasm a bit from the perspective of an anatomist, because I've even read conflicting physiological descriptions of what the hell orgasm even is. Well, it's kind of rough from a mechanist perspective. All you got is some involuntary spasming in some muscles that would normally be voluntary. <laughs> so it's like, that's all they got. You go to someone like Wilhelm Reich, if you want to up, what do you call, up level your understanding of orgasm and its energy potential as an expression of life force pulsing for him, that's just the most basic pulsation of life. But I don't know that Reich was a spiritual person even. I mean, he was into energy, but not necessarily a spiritual orientation. I think you could take it to that level too. I think that life moving through form in that way is a spiritual phenomenon. And that when you start to, as you said, fully inhabit every cell, get in there completely and embody the form as spirit, you can take the energy that we call orgasm and that we are experiencing maybe focused in our pelvic region, and you can have similar experiences in your heart and in your brain and beyond that. So you can have very intense waves of energy, I bet you could have a planet orgasm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I could save the world. <laughs> right? Sorry, I got to put my weapon down. I'm having a planet orgasm. <laughs> How could you wage war on that planet? But who's to say what is bad? <laughs> In other words, if you saw a lion on the Serengeti chasing down a zebra, that's not war, that's lunch right? But if you're a zebra baby watching your mama get devoured, or usually vice versa, to our projecting emotional natures, we'll say, oh, that's sad, unless you're rooting for the cubs of the lion, in which case it's great. The more you step out of it, the less horrific the immediate processes seem, so that if you are the little red blood cell bill, <laughs> and your whole family is just about to be devoured in the spleen, spit out into pieces, sent to the bone marrow, and rebelt into another family, you're going to be like, what? <laughs> but from a bigger perspective, you're like, feels good. We can only grieve at a level. Do you really feel that bad for Bill and his family? <laughs> the little red blood cells? You don't even know. It's not so bad. I mean, you're the god of this form. Mm. And you've come to terms with the cycles that are happening within you. We rage at God. We rage. How could you let this happen here? If you saw it from my perspective, you, it would be different. So it's making more and more sense. You use this word somanot and inner space. You go cosmic quick with getting into the minutia of the flesh, Gil. It's awesome. <laughs> well, I just always had this picture of this little astronaut. <laughs> I am the little astronaut. 
and I'm going in there, but the, you maybe have seen this. It's a fantastic booklet that you can get on a science museum or something. It's called Powers of 10. And it starts out in a black void. It focuses in one exponent, one expo, what do you call it? Exponent? I don't even know. I'm not a math person. So it goes in 10 or whatever. And then some dots show up and it goes in 10 and bigger dots show up and dots. And then you're finally into galaxies and you go in and now you're in a single galaxy. Now you're in the Milky Way and you go 10, 10, 10. And now you're into our solar system, 10, 10, 10. You get to the earth, 10, 10. You're at Grants Park in Chicago and there's a person having a picnic on a blanket and you go 10 and, and you're on the surface of their skin and 10, you're inside a cell and 10 you're in the dna and 10 10 10 and then you're just into a bunch of white dots and then 10 and then it goes black again <laughs> whether you're an astronaut going out or a sonar going in you're going to end up in the same place but yeah. again that's the perspective it's all perspective it's the level and where are you going to see it from and what's your metaphor for it as well because when you predicate my body is you set yourself up for a whole world of experience you say, my body is a machine. You've set yourself up for a certain kind of experience of your body. And if you say, my body, as St. Francis did, is brother ass, a stubborn mule to be trained and subjugated to the will, then you'll have a certain kind of experience of the body. And if you say, my body is a temple of the spirit, you'll have a different relationship with your body than you will if you call it a mule or if you call it a machine. What would you call yours? Hmm. I call it so many things because I carry a basket of metaphors. But I would say my body is where I'm hanging out right now. <laughs> That's a fun question. I ask other people all the time. I, usually, I don't ask myself that much, but it's the locus of my consciousness at the moment. Yes. Something. I was going to say that earlier as location. I find helpful to describe that also because people are always talking about being present, being present. Well, what is that? That's partially being oriented in our particular space and circumstance and experience. Yeah. It's where I pay attention from at the moment. And when the body expires, I'll pay attention from a different perspective or a different frequency. Love it. I'm not really worried about it. <laughs> Do you fear death less because of the work you do, do you think, than you did? Or how is your relationship to your my, own death? My problem is craving it, actually. <laughs> it's not so much fearing it. It's like, when do I get the vacation? <laughs> because, really? Yeah. Yeah. I watch myself because I know I'm only here for a time. And I tend to set very, very ambitious goals for myself during these body sojourns. And I tend to be hard on myself. So it can be pretty intense. And I'm going to do my mission. <laughs> Whether I have fun doing it or not is up to me at a certain level. And so sometimes when I'm not having fun <laughs> doing it, or I'm annoyed with it or, or something, I'll be like, golly, when's the vacation coming? And then I'm like, ah, get back to work. <laughs> so I get over it and it gets fun again and I have a good time. So what is it that you wish people understood about their bodies? If there was a particular thing that you hope people come to understand or experience because of your work? Your body is the narrow gate through which you can enter 
the kingdom. It's that powerful. Give it a try. I'm smiling because your bio talks about your trajectory, at least for a time, was in divinity school. All through this conversation, I've been very much aware of how, sorry to use this word, but there's a a priest quality to your... (laughs) You don't have to apologize. (laughs) But in the opposite of what we can think of, or many people think of as priestly, which is dissociated and non-bodily and yeah, like anti-flesh. I tend to think of the priestly as the sacrificial and the anti sensual and all of that. And yet you have such a, again, this word comes up a lot when I think of you, a reverence for not just the body, but for life itself. I have this weird tendency to wear black t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, do you think of yourself in any way? As being oh, when I was 10 years old, I was a very, very Catholic little boy. And I prayed like, God, tell me what I'm going to be when I grow up on, on Sunday. Tell me on Sunday. Like, that'd be a good day. Tell me on Sunday when I'm in church. So that Sunday, the priest, for the first time that I ever heard him speak of it, spoke on his vocation to the priesthood. And I was thunderstruck. Oh, thunderstruck 10-year-old altar boy. OMG. I have to be a priest. And I carried that with me like a ball and chain all the way till I can't tell you for how long. And that was my whole orientation in my childhood. And I was like, I didn't really want to be a priest. (laughs) (laughs) I like girls. I was super sexual. I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know about that. I don't think that, I don't think that's right. And yet I did everything that was the most common denominator towards becoming a priest. I majored in ethics. I got a degree in the study of religion. I got a PhD in Catholic theological ethics, basically. And at some point along the while, I was like, I don't want to be a priest, but now I have to justify getting married because in this tradition, that's like a second class vocation. So I wrote my dissertation on Catholic papal marriage teachings, (laughs) just justify to my own soul that it was legitimate to get married and reject the church's prioritization of the priesthood as the best vocation because I want to be a saint. I want to be the best person I could be. And that was obviously as a pious Catholic, that's the best way you can be. That was the teaching, right? And so how can I not do that and still be the best person I'm supposed to be? How can I reject that prioritization that the church has made and still be a good person? I had to get a PhD in ethics (laughs) to allow myself to get married and divorced (laughs) because I did both. This reminds me of a fantastic conversation I had yesterday with a friend of mine who's a spiritual teacher, actually. And we were talking about how the crux of the human condition is grappling with, am I good or bad? And that it isn't just a religious construct. She grew up in a completely different culture and it has been the cornerstone of one of her preoccupations in her life. And it certainly has been in mine and I wasn't raised religiously either. So what do you think about that? I don't think that is the crux of it for humans. I think it is the crux of it for humans who have that as their crux. (laughs) And that such humans tend to get together and think that that's the crux of it for humans. (laughs) 
but they never even run into all the other humans who don't give a shit about whether they're good or not. They know they're good and they're going to do it exactly their way without reference to anything else. And they'll be perfectly happy. You know what Matt Kahn says? He says that if you're wondering if you're a narcissist or worrying that you're a narcissist, you're not. You're not a narcissist. That's awesome. So does that mean if we're worried we're bad, then we're actually must be good? <laughs> no, it just means we're caught outside the Tao. Yeah. Because when the Tao is lost, ideas of good and bad arise. Yeah, there you go. I firmly believe that everything we've done, everything we focused on is part of that tapestry of what we become. Back to this thing, and I don't know what matters, but I feel like you did become a free skill. You did. That was my conclusion. Yes, but I, in the flashiest of ways, bringing in the body, the flesh, the sensuality, the spirituality, instead of this bullshit about as soon as the body's involved, you're going to hell. I considered myself a fraud for most of my life because I didn't become a priest like I was supposed to. And then seven years ago, a friend said exactly those words to me. But you did become a priest. I was like, oh, I think you're right. I just didn't become that kind of priest. Exactly. You know, I became a different kind of a priest. You asked me, what's my mission? And I said, it's to rebrand the body. Well, there's a whole lot of underlying missions built into that mission. I call it integral anatomy because I'm into crossing regions, looking at relationships, looking at continuity, looking at the whole, not just the whole body, but the whole person in relationship, uh, embedded in greater matrices of relationships until we recognize the unity of all. Let's start with a single body that has been split in half by religion, that has been cut off at the waist, or at what level? Where do you cut it off, right? It depends on the religion. In the Catholic religion, I spent a lot of time on my knees, locking my hips out relative to my back and considering any sensation from below my hips to be negative, scary, bad, sinful, wrong. And well, let's just cut off the stomach too, because anything you eat is probably wrong and bad too. So at what level? or your heart's longings, who's allowed to want anything when you should be sacrificing yourself for everyone else. So to my mind, any religion that leads you into that kind of fragmentation of your gift, the whole thing, which was given to you, not as a trap or as a trick, but as a present to be opened and used, has not a molecule or cell in it that does not A, belong to you to explore, and B, have the capacity to be envisioned as a beautiful spiritual creation. If you are leaning into a dualistic separation of spirit and matter, you are lost spiritually. And if you are a materialist who has split yourself off from spirit, and this will be expressed in your body, you are lost because spirit and matter are one. They are not separate matters. That is dualism in itself. We just have one continuous I am consciousness. So whether you're a materialist or you think you're spiritual and not material, you're lost. You have missed the point of planet Earth. <laughs> you're not on the boat. You're not sailing to your destination. You're just suffering because that is suffering.
and your body will express it in different types of illness. So you're saying dissociation or disidentification with the body will show up as illness, injury, different things? or what? It could go in that direction. It could also go in just any kind of splitting, whether you're splitting in your family or you're splitting in your mind or you're splitting in your verbiage. Or in your communities. And, and we are pushed by all types of energies to be divisive. And it's sickening. And I mean that in a physical way and in a spiritual way and an emotional way. It's just not what we're here for. To me, that's the cardinal mortal sin. Splitting. Mm. It's beautiful. That's a whole even longer conversation I'd love to have someday. But I do now just have a few more questions, Gil. Well, wait, I also wanted to ask you about the relationship between fat and orgasm. <laughs> Because I thought that was so interesting when you were talking about nerves and all this stuff. And suddenly I thought, God, wouldn't that be amazing to do a whole research project on potentially the relationship between innervated fat and orgasm? I don't know if there's anything you want to say about that. Orgasm is not the purview of skinny people, right? Yeah. In other words, our fatty layer is sensual and delicious, and we love to grab it squeeze it, grope it, lay on top of it, squish it against someone else's. And our hostility towards fat is hostility towards women and sex. There's a relationship there. So why do you think muscle is perceived as the, the sexier texture? By whom? By many people, by culture, many cultural obsessive norms. and We have a, this incredible ambivalence in Western culture and usually white culture, it's true. Western white culture and European culture has tense and longstanding ambivalence towards fat. There's good books written on this topic. Like the fat of the land means wealth. Yeah. The king or the queen, even in European culture, is a, is a big person. Yeah, when I was living in West Africa in Niger, they were very disturbed by how thin I was. And for them, fat meant that you would survive, that you had wealth enough to eat. Yeah, exactly. But the king who's so fat that he can't mount his horse is now womanly and unmasculated. He can be just fat enough, but not too fat, <laughs> right? Or it's the kitchen maid that handles the greasy pots and pans because they're disgusting. There's an ambivalence. And that ambivalence may be heightened in our culture of celluloid from when the movies started, basically. And a movie star was shamed because she was going to gain 10 pounds on film, so she'd better lose 10 pounds. And you got that whole transformation of energy around fleshiness that happened with the invention of film. But there was ambivalence long prior to that, so that people will be like, oh, look at Titian and yeah. his art. Well, people thought Titian was a whack job in his day. It wasn't like the whole culture thought chubby naked ladies was <laughs> the be all and end all. There were people who did. There's ambivalence. But Titian was an outsider in his evocative drawings of fleshy bodies to the extent that he drew them. But if you look at Renoir, you know, Renoir's beautiful depictions of the human form were fleshier than what would be considered now, or just look at the Columbia Pictures logo. If you look at the Columbia Pictures torch lady, she had hips and 
bosom and cheeks and she was beautiful mm. and the culture perceived her as beautiful and that's why she was selected for that image but if you look at what they turned her into now she no longer fills out the dress now she sticks her knee out to give shape to the dress so there's a bony prominence below the <laughs> hips trying to define that there's a body underneath that potato sack that she's wearing, which was <laughs> filled out by her predecessor. Her neck is slightly turned so that her sternocleidomastoid is popping out, another muscle landmark. So muscle and bone are accepted now and fat is not. And to my mind, that problematization of the human body is profoundly destructive and manipulative and intentionally so consciously manipulative in a way that diminishes people's self-image, puts them in a reduced relationship with their body, and leaves them to crave solutions that are then commodified by the people who promote the image. So the commodification of the problems that are made up around our bodies is part of what churns our economy. The body is problematized, and the solutions for the problematization are commodified. Can you follow that? <laughs> That's a lot of syllables. Absolutely. I agree with you completely. I could literally go on all day about I that. I know, which is why I was going to say, I hope you'll add to your list of projects and books, the fat project, because how many people have written about fat from their own bird's eye, archaeological, sculpted discovery and visceral exploration of what it is and how it actually works, not as a concept, but how it's actually designed. The book is titled actually Pars Intima, a rebranding campaign for the human body. The one chapter that I wrote was on circumcision, and I read that and it posted it on YouTube. What I wanted to do in that book, which I haven't written yet because other things got in the way, like I came out here to Colorado for one month to do a dissection project and it's three and a half years later and I'm still at it. So I paused that, that book. One of its main chapters would be the reconceiving of fat adipose. What about circumcision? That's such a cliffhanger. <laughs> Anything you want to say about that before I finally let you go, sadly? I'll say this. Maybe 10 or 11 months ago, on this whiteboard right here, I did a video called The Amazing Foreskin to raise awareness about what I consider to be a horrific, tragic insult to the human body. Be with you. That is the most common surgery in America, and we should be ashamed for that. But the only way to actually get people on board with the darker side of the conversation is to explain why the foreskin is amazing. And if you just stick to that, just the amazing foreskin and describe its properties and its relationship to intimacy and sexual mechanics and its immune function and its pleasure function and on and on and on. If you explain that just a little bit, I could go on about it for hours, but I did a five minute video of the amazing foreskin and it's generated a quarter million views. Wow. And much of the conversation underneath, and it is a long <laughs> and vocal conversation, 
is about circumcision. And people were like coming down wherever they were on it. And I'd say, well, I actually talk a lot about circumcision, but not in this video, in a book chapter that I wrote in a book that I didn't publish. And folks were like, oh, how do we get to see this chapter? And I was like, what do I do about this? I don't have time to write this whole book right now. So I sat down in front of my fireplace and I read the chapter in front of the camera, like a fireside reading session. And I posted that. It was an hour and 15 minute long video. And it's got probably 12,000 views, which makes me happy because that's 12,000 people who watched a few minutes of it at least and would have gotten a little more knowledge about the, the machine operating in our culture to keep people ignorant and continue to profit from the unnecessary and unethical removal of healthy tissue from unconsenting infants. I so agree. And this is a great segue, actually, to the title of this podcast, The Brilliant Body, because, of course, our genital tissue has a great intelligence all of its own, which I hope someday I can lure you back to have a whole conversation just about that topic, the sentience of genitalia. Get the title right away and say pars intima, the title of the book. I speak of pars intima rather than genitals. It's my verbal reframe of genitals, which is a cultural emphasis on the generative aspect of our intimate being and mm -hmm. a reduction of our intimate being and boxing up our sexuality to a singular purpose of reproduction. And so I call it pars intima rather than genitals because it can be anyone's pars intima mm -hmm. as it can be anyone's genitals. It can be anyone's pars intima. So it's a generic term that emphasizes the aspect of intimacy rather than the aspect of reproduction. Fantastic. I love it. So we've got our segue. <laughs> or on this in a later episode of Allie's Amazing Podcast. <laughs> There's nothing actually that fascinates me more. The conversation that we're having contains what I've spent my lifetime wanting to understand and converse about and explore and share with other people. So it just means the world to me that we're able to have this conversation. And thank you for all that you're sharing with me and with our listeners about what you've also spent a lifetime exploring. One summon up to another. Exactly. And I feel very greedy because I want to keep talking to you. But last thing, what do you like best about your particular locus? <laughs> <laughs> what do you enjoy most about being a flesh being that the exploration hasn't bored me yet <laughs> in other words i didn't know it i didn't know i was a body person i'm a very intellectual person and easily distractible by many different things that i'm interested in and i have found the brilliant body to be a universe whose complexity and beauty and Magic is inexhaustible in its capacity to provide a distractible person with something to pay attention to for so long. And I haven't even remotely gotten to the bottom of it yet. I've barely gotten going. And the thing is, as amazing as the body is, it's just one level. It's one mountaintop from which you can look out at the vista of that which is greater still. I love it. Priesty. <laughs> Gil, you're awesome, man. You're, I'm so, 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 so honored and touched by you, by this conversation, by all of it. Thank you. 
You're welcome, Allie. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun. So if I, it's not too much to ask in a last sentence, how do you define embodiment? How do I define embodiment? Yeah. Maybe embodiment is the condition, ever expanding condition of conscious awareness of one's body, which may end at your skin and it may end at the Pleiades. <laughs> Anything else you want to say? Thank you, listeners. You're loved and appreciated. Thank you, Gil. You're loved and appreciated. <laughs> I hope you found this episode inspiring. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Brilliant Body Podcast and spread the word to all the other brilliant bodies you know who might be interested in some insight and inspiration. If you'd like to learn more about the many ways I'm encouraging and guiding the wider world to reclaim the brilliance of the body, please visit my website at www.alimezey.com. Thanks so much for listening. Until the next episode and beyond, reclaim your brilliant body. This episode was hosted, produced, and edited by me, Ali Mazay. Thanks for additional editing to Rachel Fell and Nina Damour. Thanks to Florence Popoff for my social media management and to Blair, Mr. One Man Band Wilson for my theme music. <laughs>